Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 126. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore on Twitter, filling in for my normal co-host, John White, at Journeyman. We are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey to virtual enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Last week, we had part one of our conversation with Tom Hollingsworth. And if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, I definitely recommend going back and checking it out. We talked about he, how he developed a networking specialty that was so deep he was able to not only study for and pass the CCIE exam, but he actually was able to contribute to that exam by being part of the advisory board for it, like a PhD level type of work. Well, this week in part two, we're going to talk about Tom's career transition from deep technical network engineer to working for Gestalt IT and becoming the event lead for Tech Field Day. We'll talk about how that came to be and why it made sense for him. And when you first start to hear about it, you're probably going to think it was a much less technical role. I think you'll find it transitioned into something a little more technical down the road. Interestingly enough, there's an element of leadership and management involved in this job that Tom is doing now. And he'll talk about his perspective on leadership. And we'll also talk about what is Tech Field Day? What is the mission of it? How does it impact the attendees that become a part of it? What can it do for their careers? We've heard about some previous guests like John Hildebrand and Kieran Sheldon who have been Tech Field Day delegates. So this is a little bit different perspective from someone who's on the inside track as to what Tech Field Day is really like and what makes up an event. So let's get to part two of our interview with Tom Hollingsworth. At some point after you got deeply technical in the networking field, you actually became a part of the Tech Field Day team. Can you tell tell the listeners a little bit about how that happened and what made that interesting? Yeah, it's it's funny because like I spent oh man years studying for my CCIE. Um, I, I I joke I I oh I I'm not joke I failed the exam six times. I, I finally passed on my seventh attempt, but somewhere around attempt four. I really started documenting some of the stuff that I was doing because I realized that as I was studying, you know, there were some good blogs out there. In fact, that's how I I met Ethan Banks of the Packet Pushers was I started reading his CCIE study blog and and several others. And then as I started studying, I created my own blog to kind of parallel what they were doing. And then, you know, that begot social media and other stuff. And as I started being more active and writing more about that, um, Stephen Foskett, who's the the founder and CEO of uh, Gestalt IT and Tech Field Day, he reached out to me and he said, "Hey, do you want to come to our event?" And I was super super excited because you know I'm some you know <laughs> punk kid in the middle of Oklahoma with very little networking knowledge because I, I play in a very small pond. And here, this guy wants to fly me to California and learn about other tech companies. 
And then he kept asking me to come back. And I was really thrilled by that. And as I spent more and more time coming back to the event, I, I was learning more and more, but I was getting more and more involved in like, you know, helping him out when he needed stuff or, or kind of, you know, telling everybody, hey, it's time to go get in the car. And eventually I got to a, an inflection point in my own career where I felt like I was kind of wasting time. Like the seat I was hitting against the ceiling of I have to either break through where I'm at right now to do more or I'm just going to have to walk away from it and do something else. And I had a couple of false starts. Like I interviewed for a job and they were like, oh, well, your blog is really your hobby, like tying flies or working on cars. And in that instant, sitting there at that desk, I was like, no, it's not. It's like my second job. I, I, I feel very attached to this. It's not something I do for fun. And then I, I mentioned that to Steven and he goes, well, hey, you're, you're coming out here next week um, for networking field day. Let's talk about your, your job you know, your career. Have you ever considered becoming the Dread Pirate Roberts? I think you'd make an excellent Dread Pirate Roberts. And no kidding, that was my job offer. And we talked about it. And he's like, well, you know, here's what's involved with it. And you're not going to be technical at all. I'm like, okay, so you're basically hiring a CCIE to do what? And he goes, um, buy airline tickets for people and edit video. Okay, sign me up. And so that was eight years ago. Uh, today, as of the recording of this, uh, this thing, June 1st of 2013, I started um, at, at tech field day. And, uh, I spent the first year and a half, like that's what I did is I would call hotels and yell at them because they misspelled their name on the marquee. Um, I would do a whole lot of video editing. I, I would drive a minivan all over Silicon Valley. And then eventually we got to a point where we were doing so many events and Steven's like, okay, listen, you know, networking and wireless really well. And I know like cloud and storage really well. So let's just split it in half and I'll do my stuff and you do your stuff and we'll just run with it. And that's kind of the, the growth pattern from there was getting involved in the community, figuring out what the community needed, being recognized for knowing that, and then kind of coming on board and then growing in that. Because there are a lot of people out there, and, you, and Nick, you and I both know them. You tell them that you need them to do something very basic, and they just they scoff at it. Like, that's beneath me. I don't want to do that. I don't do that anymore. I'm beyond that. And how many times has that relationship soured over the course of however long, just because those people, they don't get it. Like, I'm not asking you to do this job because I'm trying to demean you. I'm asking you to do it because it needs to be done. If I, as a CCIE had walked up to Steven and go, listen, um, I appreciate that you hired me and everything like that. But if I'm not in charge of my own little area over here, there's no way that this is going to work. Because when I started, I was the third employee at the company. There was no area for me to be over. I was one of the people doing the work and it didn't matter what it was. And that's important for people to understand as they're getting into the industry. Don't be the person that says no because it's beneath you, because nothing should be beneath you. When I was in college, I worked in food services and I, I ended up having to throw shirts away because they permanently smelled like French fries. But one of the things was, is that even as the manager of the operation on the weekends, I was, I was the buck stopped with me. I would go in and give breaks to people in the smelly, wet, disgusting room where you scrape off all the dishes. Why? Because anytime anybody came to me and said, well, I don't want to work in there. Well, why not? Well, because it's beneath me. I'm like, it's not beneath me. I go in there all the time and I'm in charge around here. It's, you should never feel like something is a job you shouldn't be doing. Can you choose not to do a job? Yeah. I mean, if it's going to get in the way of what you're doing, um, if it's something that's completely outside of your skill set and you are afraid you're going to mess it up, you can absolutely say no. 
but the reason for you saying no has to be better than I don't think that that is worthy of my attention or talent. I think what you're saying is check your ego at the door. And it sounds like you did a very good job of demonstrating to your team what servant leadership is actually all about. Yeah. And servant leadership is something that I, 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 it took me a long time to realize that it's something that I've embodied my entire life. And as I've become more and more engaged with it through things that I do outside of the tech community, I'm like, you know, that was just something that came naturally to me. And, and to see that people are having a hard time, you know, when they finally, the light bulb goes off and wait, I get it. Like, that's a thing that we should be striving for. And I'm like, yeah, but for those of us who kind of understand the importance of it and the, you know, the idea of, you know, a leader should be right there in front of their people, you know, doing the work with them, not just ordering them around to do stuff. You know, it's, it's kind of impactful, not just to you to understand what you need to do to make people better, but also to the rest of the people who go, I will follow that person anywhere because, you know, they got down with me and made sure that it happened. That's good. Setting that example and removing roadblocks. You know, we've had other guests on the show who went into management and they say that their job is to remove roadblocks for their team so that their team can be better, develop and do their job efficiently and effectively. Yeah, I used to joke toward the end of my career uh, at my my former job. Um, for those of you who play uh, MMORPGs online, you'll you'll get the reference. I used to tank angry customers. Um, they would come stalking down the hallways or the president of the company would come upstairs looking for somebody to yell at because something didn't go right. My job was to stand in front of that person and let my team work. And I used to literally look at them and go, shout at me, get angry at me because I can take it and I personally don't care either way. But you let them do their job. And when everything is done and the network's back up and running or the problem is solved, We'll go over here and we'll sit down and we'll figure out whose fault it is and who needs to be yelled at. But until that time, stay off of them. Let's go get a cup of coffee. I'm going to walk you down the hallway. I'm going to get you out of the way. And, you know, that's more of a physical roadblock. But, you know, there are a lot of other process roadblocks or other things that, you know, if you are the person who has the direct influence to be able to make those things go away, you should do that because one, it makes your team more productive, but two, it shows that you have a special kind of value to your people. There have been situations in the past with some of my old bosses where I screwed up. I know I screwed up and, and they rightfully told me that I screwed up. So mea culpa, I get it. But as soon as the person above them came in looking for me, they turned right around and defended me to that person. In a way, you know, like we've already handled the situation. It's not going to be a problem anymore. Back off. I'm doing my job. And at that point, I'm like, oh, you, man, you can tell me that I did things wrong all the time because I know that you're doing it to make me better, not doing it to make me feel like I'm the only one to blame. And I've always tried to pass that very same thing on to other people. I'm not doing this because you're bad. I'm doing this because I know you can be better and I want you to be better and I want you to learn from this. And if that means taking heat for you, shielding you from somebody else who doesn't get it, then that's what my job as a manager or a, a supervisor for you should be. Yeah, there's something to be said in, in buffering the intense situation. It takes a special kind of talent for you to be able to take that angry or upset person and basically defuse the bomb. We, we got into management there. Have you managed groups of people at various points throughout your career? You mentioned uh, in food service, you mentioned team of networking engineers. 
Have you done that at Tech Field Day at Gestalt as well? In a way, yeah. Uh, as the event lead, it's ultimately my role to make sure that everything happens the way that it's supposed to, that the presenters show up when they're supposed to, that the live stream goes up when it needs to. And ultimately, when decisions have to be made about something, I'm the one who has to make them, which means de facto people do what I say, which I guess makes me a manager. I, I've never really thought about it like that. But but in a way, I mean, that's it's I used to joke with my mom because my mom has the same problem. Wherever we work, eventually we get kind of thrown up the ladder because we're capable, intelligent people who know how to motivate others to get things done. And real managers, real understanding people will recognize that quality and go, I'm going to make you do the thing as your job. And it's not fun. Like, like there is something very calming about just being able to walk away from a problem and like, you know, put your head into a CLI or provision some resources and be like, you know what, I'm not going to deal with paperwork. I'm not going to deal with the infighting, but eventually the people who are good at those jobs kind of get put into them because someone does need to be there to kind of play the referee when two people are fighting about something or take the heat when a customer's upset because the schedule slipped and they got put off another day. Or, you know, what happens when five people call in sick on the same day for various reasons and you have to reshuffle resources? Some people are just not good at that job. And and so you you learn to lean on the people who can. And it doesn't necessarily mean that that you are the only one. Like you need to find somebody that you can lean on too, because uh, very few organizations have a structure where only one person is ultimately responsible for everything. You know, maybe you're a, a product manager. Well, then you have a VP above you, and that person has a VP above them. And eventually you get to the CEO, but that's probably four or five steps removed. And you still need to, to leverage that capability because there are some decisions that may just be beyond you. So recognizing when you're in over your head is probably one of the things that I wish I would have learned a long time ago Instead of just making things up, just stop, look around and go, is this a decision that I need to be making or should I consult with somebody else? And if the answer is, I don't know, then yes, you need to go find somebody else. Even if you're just talking through them and going, I think this is what I'm supposed to do, but here are the other things that could go wrong if I don't get it right. And even if that person goes, dude, this is what you've got to do. At least you know that you don't need to go any further than that, that you need to spend more time kind of analyzing the options as it were right which is totally different from saying should i do this because it's below me yeah exactly i mean well here's the thing if you think about where what are where i would consider kind of the ultimate in discipline management is is in a, in a military unit sergeants are basically there to get people to do things they're given orders that they then pass on to other people and it's very structured but I promise you, whether it's a sergeant or a petty officer or anybody, you know, kind of a senior enlisted person, they can do your job better than you can. What they're really good at is getting you to do your job better. And so, like, you know, read any story of, you know, I told the sergeant that he didn't know what he was talking about. And the next thing I know, he was doing my job and driving the truck better than me and doing 10 more push-ups and then barking at me the whole time. And they, you know, they have the ability to just say, I'm going to do, I'm going to tell you what to do. You need to do it. There's actually a really good story that I've used in some of the courses that I'm involved with um, about George Washington. And he was uh, riding through one of his encampments during the Revolutionary War. 
and he noticed that there was a, a squad of men who were trying to raise a, a wooden beam in the mud. And there was a corporal who was sitting on the kind of the outskirts and he was shouting encouragement and giving orders to these guys to lift this beam out of the mud. So Washington got off of his horse and walked up to the corporal and said, what are those men doing? And he goes, oh, well, they're trying to, to lift this beam to build this structure. You know, we just need to, to motivate them more. And so Washington got down, rolled up his sleeves and helped them lift the beam. He's covered in mud. Corporal's just standing there. He doesn't know what's going on. So they lift the beam out of the mud. And so he goes back and gets on his horse and he looks down at the men. He goes, if you ever need my help, just call for Washington and he'll, he will come. And there's a bunch of things he could have done. He could have ordered the men to work harder. He could have ordered the corporal to get down in the mud and help those men. But by the fact that he got off of his horse and got down in the mud with them and showed that he, the general of his army, was willing to do the work of a private, well, I'm pretty sure that those men would have marched all the way to London on a pontoon bridge for him after that. Yeah, that's a great story. I like that. Not every leader, manager, boss is going to be willing to get down there in the trenches and do that for their people. But I agree with you that once you see that done, it changes your perception of that person and makes you a lot more loyal to the. Even if you were before, just to be through that experience, to go through that experience with someone, it just shows how much they care about you as a person and just really has an impact. Now, let me ask this, Tom. When you go from super technical CCIE to a less technical role like you were in, what does that do to someone psychologically? Do you feel like there's a part of you missing? Do you feel lost? What's the what's the mental effect of that? I'm sure it was interesting for a time, but did you ever have a, a moment where you go, this is great, I need a break, but I'm going to lose all my skills? There is. There absolutely is a point you get to where you're like, I want to go type on a command line. Like, I want to go deploy something. I'm missing out. I, yeah, I get it. Learning about Final Cut and, and, and doing Google Sheet foo until your fingers bleed is one thing. It's, it's a skill set. It's, it really is. But that's not my skill set. My skill set is, you know, making EIGRP do things it's not supposed to. But I, I transitioned in a way not from a non-technical role, but to a different kind of technical role. So engineering is very hands-on. I'm going to turn wrenches and type commands, and these things are going to work. But architecture is a role where I maybe not am not directly impacting the technical aspects of it, but what I am doing is I'm understanding how different technologies work together. So this networking piece needs these parts to function with that cloud piece. And that very much is a part of what I do today at Field Day is that I will listen to somebody's presentation or maybe it's a it's a briefing on a technology that they've developed and the architecture side of my brain starts firing off they're like okay so how are they attempting to do this or what would be the command line that I would expect to see to accomplish this goal like uh, like something like a zero trust network architecture ZTNA the outcome is the same we have isolated pathways for individual uh, hosts that have verified identities, but everybody does it a little bit differently. I remember one company, they, the way that they fixed it was they took a V switch for one port, one client, and they basically bridged the traffic to two different sections of the V switch so that they could do an inspection in the middle to do some verification work. And I'm like, I'm sitting here scratching my head going, 
yeah, I guess that would work. And so when I started drilling them a little bit about the details around it, they were like, yeah, well, some of our people came from VMware. I'm like, aha, <laughs> that suddenly makes sense. Because if you had only ever worked on physical switches, that is not the way you would have done that. But your concept of networking only extends to this point. And so that's why the concepts are still very important, because I need to understand whether or not somebody is telling me the truth or trying to feed me a very crafted architecture line. And so when I see where I can jump in and be like, okay, so how did you do this? Or how is this important? Then that's where the technical side gets to come back out. And for a lot of cases, you know, like a lot of analysts are not super technical people. They're journalists. They're writers who know just enough of the technology to be able to understand when someone starts throwing buzzwords and acronyms at them. But for somebody to come from the completely opposite side of the spectrum of, I was in that hole one time trying to get that thing configured, and I know how big of a pain in the butt that it is. Why is what you're doing different? It helps challenge them a little bit differently. Yeah, it definitely does. And analysts, are they, what exactly is that job? Because you've done some analyst-like work as well as part of this role at Gestalt. You mentioned they do journalism, They that they kind of vet some of the messages that come through in Tech Field Day and different events. Are the industry analysts the ones that do the Gartner studies and rankings? What? How would you classify what an analyst does? So there are a lot of firms that employ analysts. Gartner, Forrester, IDC are probably the biggest ones. But um, And there are a lot of even boutique analysts firms. Think of it like this. An analyst is a kind of person who looks at a stick and says, well, I could carve that stick into a flute. I could carve that stick into a miniature baseball bat. There are a lot of applications for this stick. And your job is to kind of take what a company tells you about their technology and and give it a critical eye. I mean, you know, you're you're thinking, okay, what are the use cases for this? How would I implement this? Is what they're telling me accurate? And and the thing about being an analyst is like if you are a practitioner and your company buys, I don't know, Aruba access points, well, you're gonna know the Aruba way to do everything. And if Aruba has an interesting solution for a particular problem, that's the way you're gonna know about it. Well, as an analyst, you don't implement the solutions, but you get to hear everybody else's solution. So Cisco's solution to this problem is completely different than Juniper Mist's solution, which is different than Aruba's or Extreme's or everybody else. And so you have to understand where the commonalities are and where the differences are. And then you have to be able to extrapolate from that information. So if you're one of those folks who likes to do like logic problems in Game Magazine, where they give you like incomplete information and have you fill out this big chart to figure out, you know, Jimmy was the one with the duck and the ham sandwich that rode the school bus every day. Like those are the kinds of things that analysts are good at. So, you know, a lot of times we'll be looking at a, you know, like an SD-WAN implementation and we're going, okay, so I understand how you built that and I understand why it's different than the last company that you worked at and you have to integrate it into this technology. So is the leap forward to do something uh, like this? And a lot of times as an analyst, that's teasing out the information that maybe they don't want to say right now, or maybe they even can't say right now, but it's helping the people that you're writing, whether it's a blog post or a report for, to to understand the perspective on the technology. Um, you know, if there were no analysts, SD-WAN wouldn't have taken off because SD-WAN at the time really didn't have a use case. It didn't have a, a place to be impactful. But as analysts said, hey, this would be a great way for you to do this. Now, all of a sudden, it has real value. And so we we kind of almost kind of put a, an opinion and a flavor on 
technology or marketing to help people understand why it's important and valuable. And is the analyst career path one of those that's sort of underrated or maybe not looked upon as something that someone could slide into who had a lot of experience in different areas? The hardest part about sliding into that career role, well, one, you're going to write a lot. So if you, if English was not your favorite subject in school or grammar was not your favorite subject in school, probably not something you want to do. I, I had to laugh because a friend of mine is going back to college to finish off of her, her degree. And she was complaining to me the other day. She goes, ah, oh, I have to write an 800 word paper tomorrow. And I started laughing. I'm like, I can give you 800 words in 30 minutes if you really need them. She goes, how can you do that? I'm like, uh, that's short for me. That's like average, like minimum length. And it's because I like to write and I like to be able to tie all these pieces together and help people to understand how stuff works. But it also means that I have to have a really deep understanding of the technology. And so like, you know, if you are starting out your career, you don't know how everything works. I, it, we joke around all the time, you know, you've got the old grizzled veterans that are sitting in the back. They're like, I remember back in my day before we had that TCP and we had to tie everything together with cables and token rings and yeah, they've seen some stuff, but more importantly, they've seen how stuff has evolved. So they understand why going back to the way that things used to work has advantages and disadvantages. And so that, that body of knowledge is something that you have to build before you get good at being an analyst, because it'll help you pick out patterns that you may not have seen before. And so it's a lot of it is just really is experience. And, and just like, the technical experience that I got being a network engineer for 10 years helped me be a very good um, field day event lead. The, the combination of the engineering and the architecture and business analysis that I got from being a field day event lead helps me be a better analyst because I not only understand the technology drivers, but I understand the business drivers that make the technology work. That's good. The companies that come and do the events... Does Gestalt IT have to, quote, sell them on coming, or are they normally wanting to contact you to get in front of this audience, or is it both? I mean, is there a salesmanship portion to this role? There is. Um, it, it is both. Uh, I, I told Stephen before I started, I'm like, I'm a horrible salesperson. Like, I I can't sell anything, because my, my sales strategy is, I'm going to tell you how awesome this is, and then I want you to give me money. And, but I'm not going to chase you for it. And the good news is, is that there are a lot of companies, either the ones who have had previous experience with Field Day or they've seen some of the results that we get online, that, yeah, they just come to us and like, we want to do the next thing. Whatever it is, we, we want to be involved. But there are some companies, like the ones who don't quite understand the value of what Field Day brings, that it, it requires a little bit of, of sale, selling. You know, because a lot of, and, and every company is like this. They don't invest resources without some kind of a return, right? Whether it's um, uh, coverage blog posts or video or social media discussion, you know, there's, there's some kind of exchange that has to happen. Because obviously, as Stephen and I are fond of saying, don't ever get paid an exposure because you die from getting paid an exposure. Th there has to be some kind of an exchange. So, you know, if there's money that changes hands, so, you know, to come to field day, there is a cost associated with it. They have to get something out of it in return. Well, is the video a valuable enough resource? Is it the coverage that they get from amateur analysts? Is it something else? Uh, because a lot of companies are very happy to exchange money for things like leads. 
oh, well, we, we want to know everybody who went to the video stream and we want to get with their information. Well, Stephen and I have been very adamant. We don't do that. Like that we don't do lead generation. It's just who we are. We would rather have the technology speak for itself and the companies get the kind of uh, experience, for lack of a better term, of, of having a technical briefing with a group of practitioners. Um, and, and the minute you turn that into, oh, well, you know, uh, Bill Watson from Kentucky logged into the stream and gave us his email address. And here's Bill Watson's email address. And you go track him down and get him to buy your thing. There's not a whole lot of value in it because then it just becomes no different than like scanning somebody at a booth at a trade show. Right. And the people that you're taking to a tech field day event, whether it be storage, network, cloud, whatever the category is, those are generally people who are individual contributors that work on the technology, have some kind of influence in the industry, and I I think they're encouraged to write about what they see and experience. What's the commitment for an attendee, I guess? So that is, that, that's true. So the, the people who sign up to be a part of what we would consider the live in-person audience, we refer to them as delegates because they kind of stand for the members of their community that aren't going to be able to make it in the room. Um, they There's three categories that you have to qualify in to be a delegate. You have to be an independent technical influencer. And those words are not chosen at random. You have to be independent, which means you can't work for any company that makes stuff. So if you work for Cisco or Dell or VMware, you really can't be involved with the event because your primary focus when you work there is your company. And that makes some people uneasy. I feel like you're saying I'm biased, Tom. I'm just kidding. It's it's not just that you're biased necessarily. It's the perception that you could be even if you're not. And so right. there are companies who will be like, well, I'm not going to talk to Nick because he works for my competitor. Yeah, but Nick's a decent guy. It doesn't matter. They're not going to speak. Even though everything's public. Yeah. Uh, they have to be technical. Um this is we we cut a little bit of the chaff out of the 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 pool at this point because you know like a lot of people are like oh well I know that networking thing I made my access point work at home that's great have you ever done it in an enterprise in a warehouse where you have to deal with uh, like crazy RF interference well no all right learn something and come back because the people who are talking to us don't use Netgear access points they spend days doing site surveys to understand all of the RF interactions. So you have to be a technical person. You have to know what you're talking about. Now, I'm not saying you have to be an expert because we have lots of people who come to field day who are kind of just starting out in their career, but they are willing to learn. They're willing to take what they've seen at the event and build on it. Um, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, uh, opening yourself up to the wider world, if you will. And then you have to be uh, an influencer of some kind. And I'm not talking about the people who have like 50 Instagram followers who take a picture in front of a hotel and then demand to have a free room because I'll bring you all of my Instagram audience. No, I'm talking about people who have a platform, whether it's uh, uh, being on a blog or a podcast or a video series, or you know, maybe they speak at industry events. The important thing is, is that you have an audience that you can get a message out to because ultimately that's one of the things that companies are looking for. We don't require people to write because the way I've always said it is think about that book report in school that you had to write about a book you really hated, but the assignment was to get a one page book report out of it. And you were like measuring at the very bottom of the page to figure out how many more words you had to put in that last sentence to fill out the whole page. But then you got to do a book report on a book you absolutely loved. Maybe it was the Red Badge of Courage or Old Yeller or something. And there was no upper word limit. And you could do like three pages on that book. 
that's the kind of content that you want because that's real writing right there. That's not the forced, you know, uh, it's, it's like writing a stereo manual. Now, I don't want that. I want something that comes from the heart. Like, this is the greatest thing that I've seen this year and these people are awesome and I love them and you totally need to go check them out. That's what you want. And honestly, there are times when people write, it's like, this is an okay solution, but boy, it would be way better if they would do the following things. And that's kind of an, an analyst role. I see what you're doing and I see how you can make it better. I'm not saying you have to, but boy, if you did these four things, it would look a whole lot better. Like that is the ability to take something that somebody gave you, do critical analysis on it, figure out where the gaps are and offer suggestions to make it better. Right. And in a way, it's sort of like, an advocacy program almost at least that's what it reminds me of but you really get that independent unbiased take because no one is associated with or works for a specific vendor necessarily you know as part of the things they're looking at and taking in and then if they choose to write it's because they got excited or not excited about something and they're just giving their take on it i like that yeah exactly it's it's real easy to dismiss someone's opinion when you're like oh well you're a competitor and you don't know what you're talking about. But when an independent third party comes to you and goes, yeah, you really need to implement this feature because I have five customers who would use it tomorrow if you did. Oh, well, since you put it that way, maybe we do need to look at that. Like the the ability to get what I would consider to be like a trusted advisor's opinion. And I used to throw that word around a lot when I worked at a reseller. You know, we are your trusted advisors. No, we're not. We're trying to sell you stuff. A trusted advisor is a person who walks into a sales meeting and goes, you don't need that. You actually need this thing over here. Of course, when you do that, your salesman dare like glares death daggers at you like, shut up. I got to make my boat payment next week. And you're like, no, really, they don't need that. You're selling them something they don't need. Well, yeah, you may lose that sale or you may not sell them as much as you were thinking. But I promise you the next time you show up, they're going to be like, hey, there's the guy that kind of saved me $50,000. Let's talk about something else. What do you think I really need? So then you actually get to tell them. And that's part of the reason why the independence angle is so important. I mean, we live in a world now where it's very easy for you to make a video or record a podcast and talk in glowing terms about some product. And then you find out later, the only reason you were talking in glowing terms about it is because you were sponsored by them or because there was a promotional consideration. And uh, I deal with this all the time when people leave comments on a video and they're like, this is the worst solution that I've ever seen and it sucks so bad. And it takes me about 10 minutes to dig up that they actually work for the person's competitor and they're just like out there, you know, bombing reviews. It's like, all you got to do is say, hey, I work for the competitor and I appreciate what you guys are doing with this, but it's not going to work the way you think it does. But at least tell people what's up. Don't don't try to pretend that, oh, I'm just the unconcerned man on the street telling you that this super technical thing doesn't work the way you think it does. I think there's a way to be consultative even when you sit inside that biased tunnel vision viewpoint, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I, I, it is I think that's what you're saying to some extent. Well, the funny thing is, is that it is very possible to do that. And it goes hand in hand with checking your ego at the door. You also have to check other things at the door and look at things from a critical standpoint, not just a rose colored glasses thing. Like, we talk about technical debt all the time. You know, I inherited this network and it's running an AS400 mainframe and it still has, you know, like um, 802.11b access points and it's going to take me forever to deal with this. 
but companies have technical debt too. Man, wouldn't it be awesome if we could just scrap this entire firewall portfolio and build it from the ground up the right way? Yeah, you're right, it would. But we bought that company for $400 million 10 years ago, and we're going to keep using them because we've already invested in that. It is very much the sunk cost. We're going to wring every dime we can out of them before we jettison them and rebuild it. So if you're willing to take a step back and go, listen, in a perfect world, we wouldn't be doing this. We would use something else. You know, how many times have we heard best of breed? But that's not the option right now. So if you want the full stack from us, you're going to have to use this product. And that means you're going to have to configure it this way. And you're going to have to have this other thing. I'm sorry, but that's just the way that it works. That's a very fair analysis from someone on the inside to go, is it perfect? No. Will it work? Yes. With these caveats. If you're okay with that, we can make it work for you. But far too often, the person doing that conversation is more interested in about hitting a sales goal than they are about helping the customer. Right. We should all be helpful. Like Josh Duffney said in a previous conversation, seek to just add value and you'll never go wrong. for someone who wasn't afraid to get down in the trenches with you, who didn't feel like the work was beneath them in some way, but they were happy to get down there, work with you, regardless of the of their level and title. And that really makes an impact on someone. I really enjoyed hearing Tom's thoughts on servant leadership and how managers, supervisors alike can make an impact on their employees by how they lead and what they model in their behavior. We heard that Tom didn't take a less technical role necessarily, it was just a different kind of technical role. He got to use his knowledge as an engineer, but he also got to use his knowledge of architecture, how the pieces and parts fit together, and that actually helped him become a better analyst. He benefited from what I'll call the experience snowball, the networking piece that helped with his job as an event lead, and how the event lead job helped him be a better analyst. We also learned that an analyst gig is probably not something for those without a lot of experience because you really need a body of knowledge to draw from to make some conclusions and really survey what's happening in the market and discuss the good and the bad. We learned about the nuts and bolts of Tech Field Day, what it's like to be a delegate And how a lot of times that can be a rocket ship for your career. It can give you some insight into some interesting technologies and you can contribute and affect the roadmap of vendors that are presenting their technologies to you. Because they want feedback from folks who are in an analyst type position or industry technical leaders if you will. We also talked about a popular buzzword, trusted advisor. I like what Tom had to say, that the trusted advisor is really someone who looks at things critically and is able to take off the rose-colored glasses of everything being great and is really honest about the good and the bad. I hope you're ready for the trilogy's conclusion in part three next week because we're going to talk about all things burnout and Tom has some really good suggestions about how to recognize that you might be burned out and maybe how you can recover from it. 
Just a reminder, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at NerdJourney. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore, flying solo for now. From my buddy John White, FB Journeyman, signing off.